They're all very different. Every single one of them. Different, different moods. And styles, you know? Jesus is coming soon. Amen. Thank you for that. That's an exciting truth and a song that really just gets you fired up about that truth. And um, as we look in today's scripture, Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21, we're going to find out that um, until he comes, we still have things we need to do. And there are some things, believe it or not, that we need to work on in our lives. In other words, we're not home yet. We're certainly not perfect. Yet, God is doing his perfect work. And as Philippians reminds us, he will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. This morning, I want to talk about the problem of more. From Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. It's a passage that's a parable that Jesus shares, and it talks about the destructive, deceptive nature of greed. And it impresses me that as I read through the Gospels and even the rest of the New Testament and many Old Testament passages, including Proverbs, that you'll see time and again the Bible address this area of greed. What that says to me is that it's not something that I can take for granted. It's something that even in my life, I need to be reminded of often. So please don't, don't tune me out today, but let's open to Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. And I would ask that you would follow along as I read this passage. Someone in the crowd said to him, that is Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, Who made me judge and arbitrator over you? And he said to them, that is the crowd, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Talk about the destructive, deceptive nature of greed today. I want you to understand that um, as we look at this passage in Luke, that um, just rehearse for you just very quickly why Luke wrote this gospel Obviously, it was under the inspiration and the authority of the Holy Spirit. But the Gospel of Luke was originally written as an orderly account of the things that had been accomplished by the Lord Jesus. And it was given to Theophilus, 
uh, concerning uh, these matters so that he could be assured of its content, its credibility, that is the gospel, as well as its application. In other words, the gospel is the good news, and it certainly affects our eternal well-being. Amen? But it affects everyday life. Would you agree with that as well? And one of the stories or one of the lessons that we learn in the gospels has to do with this matter of greed. And basically what you understand throughout your study of the Scripture is that greed really has no place in the life of the follower of Christ. I want to make a couple of disclaimers here. One, this, this challenge from this passage is not a call to minimalist living, okay? And by that I mean this. There's, there's many problems uh, with less than there are with more, Greed doesn't really have to do with the amount of stuff you have. It's, so it's not, it's, not a, uh, it's not a pitch for minimalist living. It's also not a uh, calling out of the one percenters. It's not that um, if you have more than most people, it doesn't mean, again, that your possessions are your idol. It goes back to the heart, really. That's what I think Jesus goes for here and in other passages It's not the amount of stuff that you have, but your heart attitude toward it. It's not how much or how little, but the heart attitude toward those things that we have. And having given you those disclaimers, I want to give you a truism, and it's this. One of the biggest distractions to a healthy walk with God is an unhealthy desire for more. And we in America, in the Western world especially, should understand that. We call that greed. Solomon, back in the Old Testament, book of Ecclesiastes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote these words, Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. And it was the ancient historian Plutarch who said, greed never rests from acquiring more. Why? Because more is never enough. And so today I want to look at, in this parable that Jesus shares with these people in this situation, we want to look at the deceptive, destructive nature of greed. How is it so destructive? Well, first of all, because it would have you believe that your life actually does consist in the abundance of your possessions. It dupes you into thinking that. It actually leads you to believe that your life is fueled by your stuff. In other words, if you want to live life to the fullest, you need more. In the introduction to the story here in this chapter, we see the backstory of the parable. We see that an unnamed individual called upon Jesus, teacher Jesus, rabbi Jesus, to help him straighten out a family inheritance matter. Someone in the crowd, him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. That wasn't uncommon in that day for rabbis to be consulted to help resolve such family matters. But in response to this request, look at what Jesus said. 
He said, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He wasn't being rude. He chooses not to take sides in the matter. I think he sees through the man's request. He sees that this man does not appear to be looking for him to arbitrate a dispute, but to advocate for his position. In other words, he wants Jesus to side with him and to do what he wants Jesus to do that would benefit him. Jesus sees what the real problem is. He had this uncanny ability to assess his environment. After all, he's God. But he sees right through this man, and he sees what the real problem is, and seizes this moment and shares this proverb in that passage, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And after sharing that proverb, he goes on to share the parable, the story, and illustrate it so that not just the man, but the entire crowd of people gathered on that occasion would understand the power of the truth that Jesus was sharing with them. He confronts the hard issue of covetousness. It's a fancy word for greed. They mean the same thing. The word greed there, the word covetousness, implies a strong and unhealthy desire for more and more and more regardless of the need. Wanting more than what others have. Wanting more. Wanting to have the most. You think about it in those terms. Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke reminds us that often disputes over inheritance are really about greed. It's true. Inheritance becomes an occasion to see it on full display. Sometimes working in families in very subtle ways to divide family members. Well, this is the occasion, but really it's not just about inheritance. It goes to the deeper heart issue of greed and the potential that that has to find a stronghold in all of our lives. Jesus' admonition is for one to take care and be on their guard against it. When it comes to the subtle nature of greed, Jesus' call is for hypervigilance. He says, you need to be careful of this. You need to be on your guard against this. Why? Because it remains one of the biggest obstacles to a healthy relationship and walk with God. Jesus said in another place, no man can serve two masters. Can't be done. An unquenchable desire for more is a real-time barrier to spiritual growth. It will hinder you. Why? Because it leaves you wanting, just as Ecclesiastes says. It doesn't deliver. It doesn't satisfy. Because your daily walk with God is about developing a greater dependence upon Him. Not upon yourself, certainly, and not upon your stuff. I know this touches a nerve with a lot of us, myself included. Jesus went on to say in verse 15 that one's life does not consist 
in the abundance of his possessions. It's worth pausing and stopping and looking just for a brief moment at the word life. That's one of my favorite words. It's like the word hope to me. It just rings true. There's something eternal about it. Of course there is. The word that's used here for life is the word that's translated zoe. And it means more than just existence. It means more than just breathing. It has this idea of being purposeful, meaningful, satisfying life. I want you to think of it in terms of life experience and not just life existence. John MacArthur wrote these words that I thought really helped clarify what this word conveys. Fulfilling, satisfying life that enjoys eternal peace, joy, hope, and blessing from salvation is not attainable from the material world no matter how much one possesses. We all have these big moments in our lives where we learn this lesson in some way or another. And for me, it came years ago in the mid-90s when I visited the mission field of Peru and had the opportunity along with a a godly missionary couple and a group of 20 of us, 15 teenagers and and five adults, visited um, the, the city of Iquitos, Peru, on the Amazon River, and we had the opportunity to make our way through several villages along the Amazon River and bless and be blessed by the ministry from the folks in those villages, in those churches. Now, when you think of church, I mean, you have this picture of an 85,000 square foot building that sits on 33 acres, and you make your way up here. But when you think of church in some places in the world, you realize that you have to double-check the bench because it's a splintered two-by-six, and the last thing you want to do is move around a lot when you're sitting down on there. And you realize that when you look up, there aren't windows, just boards. And when you're sitting there in the service, all of the sun, some of the neighborhood critters come and join in the worship. And I stepped back from that experience, and my wife and I would communicate. At that time, we could only communicate through email. And I thought, you know what? If you just give me a picture of my mom and dad and send my wife and my kids here, I think I could be quite content. Because the folks here really have very, very little. And what conveyed to me was the joy of the Lord on their faces. Honestly, we're, we're blessed with the worship team and the singing, and, and you're singing, and it sounds wonderful, and, and, I want, and, and I wouldn't take away from that. I love it. Boy, do I enjoy my air conditioning. Some of you think it's too cold. Some of you think it's too hot. It's just right today. We're so blessed. We are so blessed with this material stuff, right? But you learn that lesson in life through various experiences like that, that you can really get along with very little. It's not wrong to have what we have. It's wrong when we make it our idol. It's wrong when we make it all about life. 
And, and, and the folks down there had this guitar that was out of tune. And when they, when they sang, um, I can only describe it as they were singing as unto the Lord. And it was a wonderful sound. The joy of the Lord was their strength. And so we can rejoice in that situation. We can rejoice in this situation. The difference really comes down to the heart attitude. Paul said, I can have a little, I can have a lot. I've learned that whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. And that contentment is so important. The accumulation of stuff and the desire for more and more never satisfies and never fosters spiritual growth. Daryl Box said, Wealth's only legacy is its fleeting nature. Here today and gone tomorrow. Listen, your life consists of so much more than your material possessions, the stuff that you have accumulated. Life is not fueled by our stuff. Life is not sustained by our possessions. In fact, it can come to a point where the things that we have choke out real life, life as Jesus meant, life that he talks about in the Gospel of John, abundant life. These things can choke that out. They can smother it. What you have or how much you have was never meant to define the real you. Who you are, who you are in Christ That's what defines the real you. A lot of people mistakenly measure the success of life by the abundance of their possessions. They find their significance in their bank book, in their investment portfolio, in their real property, in that collection, that coins collection, that stamp collection, that that card collection, in awards and in accomplishments, Anywhere but in their Bibles. I'm talking about Christians. In another passage in Mark 8, Jesus said to the assembled crowd, which included his disciples, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? For what can a man give in return for his So what does it profit a man if he gains all that he can gain temporally and forfeits or gives up his own soul, which is eternal? What can a man give in return for his soul? Rhetorical question, nothing. If you think that your life is held together by your belongings or your bank account, you made a huge mistake. The passage would say you're deceived. That's what greed does. It causes you to think that your life really consists of the abundance of your possessions. But it also uh, would have you to believe that the goal of your life is more, capital M, capital O, capital R, capital E. The goal of your life is more for yourself. Now we come to the story proper that Jesus uses to illustrate his point that one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And in the story proper, this is how Jesus starts. He told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. 
It appears that the character in the story, the rich man, was trying to define in his own terms what he perceived to be the good life and the goal of life. Verse 16, the rich man had a measure of material success. He had, he had, he had a fortune. He had good fortune. His, his land produced plentifully. That word plentifully means that it produced above and beyond expectation. This is the season of harvest for our little gardens, isn't it? Don't you just love it when you get a bumper crop of, of tomatoes? Don't you just love it when you get a, a bumper crop of squash? You can bless everybody else, right? We understand plenty. Well, multiply that for this farmer, and it means that his land produced above and beyond expectation. He had a bumper crop, and because of that, he faced the problem. Verse 17. He thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops. Let's call it the problem of more. You'd say, I'd love to have that problem. Be careful what you ask for, right? He has accumulated more than he anticipated, and he accumulated way more than he needed. What shall I do, he says. He contemplates his options as he is out of storage space. He's got more and nowhere to put it. His thought process in verse 17 is faulty at the start. Why? Because he doesn't see himself as a steward of the abundant possessions and resources that he's been given. There's no thought given as to the distribution of the excess. He seems to be, even in verse 17, completely absorbed, uh, self-absorbed. And so, verse 18, he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. I mean, it makes sense from a business standpoint. He's simply going to try to make room for all of he, that he has. But this faulty process of thinking really came to where it yielded or netted a faulty plan. He chooses to replace his existing barns with larger ones to store all of his grain and goods. It's not the plan of a steward. It's not the plan of a steward that believes that all of he has comes from the good hand of God. I mean, John MacArthur, I think, was right when he penned these words. Farmers are dependent for their success on circumstances and factors beyond their control. This is not the plan of a man who, uh, who really put his trust in God, but it's the plan of a selfish man who views all that he has as coming from his own hard work. My crops, he says, my barns, my grains, my goods, me, my, I, count them. Look how many times he refers to himself in this passage. And what you come to realize here is, here's a guy who prizes self-sufficiency over dependence upon God. You say, well, that would never be true of me. Take a good, hard, heart look at yourself. 
It is so easy to fall into this trap as an American Christian, to fall upon our own self-sufficiency, over-dependence upon God, and to, and to think that somehow we are uh, responsible, solely responsible for all that uh, we have. This man's main thought in verse 19 is not God has blessed me, and his main concern is not how can I bless others with this abundance. Look at verse 19. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Pretty pleased with himself. He's done well. There's nothing that says in the passage that it was ill-gotten gain. Seems to be all above board. He's very happy with his condition and his position. But his thought process doesn't seem to be God has blessed me and his main concern is not how can I bless others out of this abundance, but how can I guarantee myself, listen, not just a measure of security free from worry, but how can I guarantee myself lavish living and a life of ease for years to come? That's his question. Showing in this passage no apparent uh, concern for others and no acknowledgement that what he has comes from the good hand of Almighty God. He looks at all the outward indicators and concludes that he's attained his goal and his life is good. And he runs home and he puts on his life is good t-shirt. And he runs out to spread the optimism that hard work pays off. Look what I did. But the problem of more or greed is that it never really satisfies and it gives you a false sense of well-being and it always leads to selfish ends. Always. It gives you the sense that everything is fine when everything really may not be fine at all. Reflect back on the story and the reason Jesus told the story. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That's not really what makes up a man's life. It's sad to hear when someone only defines themselves or someone else by their possessions. Years ago, I was called upon to do a funeral for a man in the community, and this is how his son eulogized him. At least my father drove a new car every year. I like John Wesley's quote, revealing his perspective on stewardship, and I think it's one that's helpful to all of us. This isn't necessarily a message on stewardship today, but I guess when you're talking about greed, you can't help but have the two overlap. Wesley said, having first gained all you can, and secondly, saved all you can, then give all you can. This was my edited words along with Wesley's. Having first gained all you can, because John Wesley believed in, in hard work, and secondly, saved all you can. He, he was a man of discipline and, and thought that it was important to save and then give all you can. He was also a man 
that would be characterized by generosity. Daryl Box said, when possessions are the goal, people become pawns. When possessions are the goal, people are easily sacrificed. In fact, a reversal of the created order occurs as those made in the image of God come to serve dead non-images. We worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Romans chapter 1. Greed would actually have you believe that the goal of your life is more for yourself. It would actually have you believe that the goal of your life, that is, that what you have, your possessions, really consist or make up your life. And the third thing it would do is it would have you to believe that you're in control of your own future. Verse 19, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. I have a plan for my life, for the foreseeable future. I've got this. Everything's in place. And then verse 20, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be. At this point in verse 20, Jesus introduces another key character into the narrative. You can't miss him. In fact, he's the main character. It's God himself. Everyone around the man may have been impressed with his accomplishments. Everyone, that is, Save God. God's not impressed at all. Verse 20 serves as a wake-up call to the crowd. You don't want to find yourself in this man's sandals. We get a real understanding of where this man's head and heart are by the words God speaks to him. Fool. Buffoon. Halfwit, blockhead. You're completely lacking in sense and knowledge of the truth. You could not have acted more unwisely or imprudently. You have failed to consider the real consequences of leaving God out of your plans. That's what a fool is. And you've completely and wholly missed the point of life. There's so much more. You've missed it. All of your stuff has clouded your vision. It's gotten in the way of the most important things. Greed brings you to a point where you actually think that you are not accountable to anyone, let alone God. The Westminster Confessions, it says that that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this man's idea was the chief end of man is to glorify self and indulge himself. There's a sense in which greed can lead you to believe that you're immortal and that you always have more 
time. Look at what God says to the man. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. That is one of the most sobering phrases in the book of Luke. This night your soul is required of you. Two words, rude awakening. One hyphenated word, short-sighted. The man in the story thought he had many years. He, he thought he had a measure of control over his own future. And God shares with him, man, you don't even have many hours or many minutes. Did you know that God knows something about your life that you don't know? He knows when it will end. And it's apparent that the man in the story thought much of himself and nothing of God or others. It was greed and not God that had a stronghold in this man's life. He failed to take into consideration God's desire, God's design, God's plan, God's input for his life. And those four important words found in James 4, 13 to 16, if the Lord wills, remember those words? James chapter 4, look them up later. If the Lord wills, those words were nowhere to be found in this man's vocabulary. And the Lord says to him, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's a rhetorical question, really, right? The answer is obvious, not yours. You cannot take it with you. I think Randy Alcorn was the one who said, you cannot take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You cannot take it with you. The things that you have will be of no value or use to you after you leave this earth. They will bring you no comfort nor ease in death. And in the end, all that you have accumulated will be scattered. In some way, it will be scattered. Maybe some of it will end up over on Clinton Street on Antique Row. You're never the captain of your own soul. You're never the master of your own fate. You're accountable to God. And I agree with John MacArthur. These are sobering words, but listen to these words. There is no bigger fool than he who does not prepare for the life to come. Eternal life. To to gather and amass everything that you can in this world... And miss the whole intent and purpose of life as God intended it is truly, truly sad. So Jesus applies this passage in verse 21 to the man, to his brother, to the crowd that's there. He says, So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
so is, you could read it this way, so is the fate of the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. People who stockpile out of greed are like this man and are poor toward God. They have nothing in their eternal bank account whatsoever. That's what Jesus says. If you spend all your days preparing for a life of ease and you fail to prepare for eternity, this passage says you're a fool. You may be a rich fool, but you're still a fool. Greed deceives, it distorts, and it destroys. If more is your goal, then greed is likely your God. It's your idol. When you use what God has given you for his glory and the good of others, you're rich toward God no matter how much or how little you have. I told you in the beginning that the the scriptures have much to say about this, not only in the Gospels, but also in the New Testament letters, many of which were written by Paul. And in one such passage in 1 Timothy 6, when Paul's writing to Timothy, this, this younger pastor man in the faith, he writes these words, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Listen to verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin into destruction. Paul says, for the love of money, not just, not money, not things, but the love of money, the love of things is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. It's actually such a strong pull and draw that it has led some away from the faith and it has pierced themselves with many pangs, Paul says. That's the destructive, deceptive nature of greed. So what should be our prayer? What should be our desire for every one of us here in this room this morning? Simply this, and I'll close with these words, that we would be rich toward God in the things that really matter. That we would continue to cultivate that dependence upon God. And we would continue to be people that would be marked out as those who are generous with however much or however little God has blessed us with, acknowledging that he will care for us through all that he takes us through, through thick and through thin. That we, God's people, would earnestly desire to be rich toward God. And then more is no problem whatsoever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this text of Scripture, which challenges us in a very basic area. It challenges us in our pocketbooks, our back pockets, our wallets. It 
challenges us as, as we go home today, as we go back to our places, our dwellings. It challenges us as we go to work, as we think about all you've given to us. May it be our heart's desire to be rich toward you. And may you help us keep all that we have in right perspective so that we could use it to glorify you. Thank you that you give us all that you do to be richly enjoyed and help us to remember that the end goal of it is to glorify you with our lives and with all that we have. For we give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand and join us again? We're going to close our